I think we're all in that hustle and bustle in life where we're thinking about what do I do next, what do I do next, without pausing to see how can I interweave empathy in what I'm doing this very minute. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I speak to Lakshmi Hansbao, global CISO of Vox, about the different hats a CISO often has to wear and the importance of wearing them well. We talk about four pillars of responsibility a modern CISO needs to nurture and how to build digital trust, ultimately facilitating digital transformation. As a CISO, experience in a broad range of business functions incorporating security often paves the way for future career growth. As the cybersecurity industry continues to evolve, it creates opportunities for some to reshape the way their organization sees them from a security office into something I really love, a trust office. Lakshmi, thank you for joining the podcast today. Uh, just for the listener, if you could just describe who are you and, and where do you work as a Absolutely, Steve. Appreciate the opportunity. So who am I? Um, depends how much time we have as a person. You know, I feel like I have a zoo at home right now with me. I have two cats, two dogs, and feel like there's more of the zoo waiting for me. But at work, I'm the global CISO for Box. Box is an enterprise content cloud management platform. And I have responsibilities over a number of areas. Uh, and this is where you will find when you talk to different CISOs, and Steve, you have that the span of uh, influence or the span of control within their different roles. So maybe I could explain what it is for me. It's across six different pillars. And I truly believe that as a CISO, this is needed so that we can operate through a single pane of glass view on risks. And I'll come back to that statement that I just made. But the various pillars under my responsibility and accountability include security, which is operations, corporate, product, customer, production, automation, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about automation today, red team, blue team areas as well. And uh, it also includes compliance. You know, We do a number of audits and certifications over the course of the year and uh, maintaining trust within our platforms, products, and with our customers is very significant to Box. It also includes quality management system as the dog wagging every other tail in the trust uh, pillars so that we can achieve the level of quality we need with certifications, with policies and standards, with training and so on. The third pillar is data protection, and we see it in a number of ways, supporting the privacy aspects of Box. Privacy for Box is within legal, so we are the doer arm for privacy. So making sure that privacy by design, privacy principles are incorporated within our product and we can perform privacy impact analysis. But it also includes thought leadership operations around data scan, data hygiene, data loss protection, data retention, deletion, and so on. So anything around data, this is the pillar to go to. All of these pillars include their own architecture engineering and we integrate with the enterprise architecture board as well. The fourth pillar is risk and assurance. So the validation function includes our internal audit function, which does more than just security auditing. Uh, we, we go after other areas in the company as well. So that's a little bit of expansion of scope within the team. 
but it includes important aspects like enterprise risk management, crisis, emergency, business continuity, disaster recovery, and third-party assessments. The fourth is Office of the Governance and Project Management provides a strategic portfolio, operational excellence metrics. And uh, the fifth one is uh, customer advocacy and go-to-market enablement, which we believe is the differentiator between customers choosing Box, continuing to retain Box as their strategic platform for their content, and building upon the capabilities of how they're using platforms. Early discussion with customers, transparency around the capabilities and risks in operating in the platform, and also learning from them their use cases, their priorities, their challenges, and always having that tethered to reality saying, are our products offering services meeting the reality of the customers so that we're not operating in a bubble here? So that's the extent of the team. It's uh, international and very fortunate uh, to have uh, a sea of talent across these pillars. That's massive. I think there's many CISOs who maybe have similar responsibilities, but I think the added pieces for one is many CISOs don't have kind of a product quality job in, in the midst of that. And there's certainly, I think the customer element that you mentioned is interesting and unique. I want to go back to those here in just a little bit, but before we do, you didn't start here. How did you get your start? And what was the road to becoming a CISO that's responsible for these, you know, these, these six massive pillars that, that are really wide reaching and, and beyond what I think most CISOs have? Where'd you get your start? Right. And I think this was built organically over the last 24 years when I've been in this field of information risk management, security. And it's within the last eight years that, in my mind, this has evolved. And by the way, we call ourselves the trust office. So, you know, we truly believe that we build trust uh, within our product service offerings. We maintain that trust through independent certification, assurance, and so on. And Trust is what we're selling to our customers. I mean, when they sign the proverbial daughter line with us, apart from feature parity and all of that capabilities, platforms, all of that, it's it ultimately the, the catapult across if anybody sitting on the fence becomes the differentiators and trust that we have. So for me, within the last eight to 10 years is when this view has developed. And it was very important for me to operate in a role which has this, and this is coming back to the phrase that I use, the single pane of glass view on risk. So because if you don't have accountability, if you don't have skin in the game across these pillars, then it becomes a fragmented view of risk. And, and then the, the necessary guided investments, conversations with the board, all of that you're having also follow that, you know, the fragmentation follows uh, there as well. So, but coming back to how I made my start, one thing I believe is, it, well, actually the two things. One is, my mom always said that, uh, Lakshmi, if you ever find yourself to be the smartest person in the room, just go find another room. So basically what she's telling me <laughs> was that um, surround yourself with people smarter than you are and learn from them. And then there's always a moment uh, to educate them as well, because it's not that you don't bring a differentiation and uniqueness uh, to the conversation. But the second important aspect uh, for me was you know, how I catapulted into this. I started as a security engineer in the space working on R&D, on network directories and network um, environments. 
And this really suited my personality. So when I talk to my kids today and across different channels, they're hearing, find your passion, find, you know, all of that. For me, I have a very simple thing. I say, find what suits your personality. And the personality, yes, you're going to evolve, you know, from your toddler to teenagers to adults and post midlife crisis and so on. But it's an evolution. And so that means your taste, your interests also going to evolve. But at any point of time, it suits where you are with the personality in the stage of life that you are. So I take calculated risks, both in my personal professional life. I tend not to freak out. I mean, I need to know what I need to freak out about. And then the others are like, okay, I can have a calm conversation around it. So it was more my personality. So you know, to survive in this space for 24 years, as you know, it can be really exhausting, not to mention the number of news and breaches and other things that are there. But you have to find that not star and you have to find what drives you. And I think for me, it was, it was a complete alignment to how I operate both on the personal and professional side. And it wasn't exhausting to fit into a work environment, right? So that didn't take much of my time. And then over the course of several, uh, you know, two plus decades now, it has, the role has evolved. Like I've moved from a central organization to lines of businesses that needed audit cleanup or DOJ memos that needed to be addressed and built out strategically and so on. So I've been, so every single pillar that I've had, I've operated intrinsically and in detail. So when I talk to my team, when I talk across the pillars, or even when I talk to engineering, I'm able to put myself in their shoes. And the more I put myself in their shoes and develop that empathy, the more the, the role or what I wanted to do has evolved, right? Because it wasn't just enough to have domain expertise. It needed to be accompanied by business acumen and the sense of empathy to drive a remediation as well. With empathy, talk to me about that. What is that something that you had as a starting out as an engineer, the concept of empathy? I think it was starting out as a kid. I mean, it's, <laughs> and I notice it in small aspects in life where I'm amazed that people don't take that one minute to think about what it means for others. And, and that's what I meant. So it's, so it's yeah. not so much that work drives empathy. You have to think about non-work environments, creating that as a DNA with which you operate, and you bring that into your work experience somehow. So I've been, you know, from the kid, whether, you know, whether it was someone at school that wasn't getting the attention they need and they needed the help in social interactions to being the local community SPCA for a couple of streets uh, in the radius of my home to simple things. You know, the other day, the first day of school, a couple of days for my kids. And I noticed that the school gate, you know, people just kept opening and closing and banging it. And there were kids with special needs coming in wheelchairs and so on. And not one of them stopped just to open the gate and just sort of anchor it there so that, you know, the kids can go with a more smoother flow. So I think we're all in that hustle and bustle in life where we're thinking about what do I do next? What do I do next? Without pausing to see how can I interweave empathy in what I'm doing this very minute. Sure. No, I think that's time well spent. And I, I keyed in on the phrase or the idea. I personally believe that while there's an issue with the number of talent that we have in terms of lacking headcount of, of trained uh, security professionals, I think we lack greater 
leadership. I mean, I think that we, we have a bigger crisis there than we do in sort of the missing numbers of analysts and engineers and architects within the security field. And so I think one of the missing ingredients uh, kind of in that, in that realm certainly is, is empathy. So the fact that you chose to share it was very interesting with me. I think it plays a big role in servant leadership, which is something I, I like to talk a lot about and, and write about. So uh, the fact that you make it human is very interesting. And that I think is, is that road to leadership as well. So the higher you go in an organization, maybe the more empathy you need to have because you're responsible for them and a little empathy can go a long way. So uh, you're the first guest that I've had that's mentioned empathy. So credit to you. Thank you. And I think it builds, you know, we were, we were talking about trust right now. We're talking about trust pillars, trust with our business as stakeholders, with our customers, with our partners. But empathy goes a long way in building that trust as well. It's as simple as hearing the customer use cases. Let's, before pitching what we have, let's just hear and be sure we're connecting with that pain point, right? So that's a sign of that. And then uh, the other, on the inward side, when you think about building teams and, you know, the dirt for talent is always going to be there. If we have 2.3 million jobs in the cybersecurity world that we're not going to be able to find talent for, we have to think about, you know, there's half of those of lawyers and accountants here in the U.S. and those jobs have been established hundreds of years ago. So we have to acknowledge there's going to be a gap, but driving with the differentiation, whether it's in leadership, whether it's in the offerings that we provide on the platform, whether it's with customer engagement. I think that's what drives people towards a certain posture that they want to engage further with. I think with the era of just checking off features, product features is gone. People are clearly looking for differentiation, not just in the trust field, but also in engagement and saying, is this SaaS provider, is this platform going to be a partner, not just now with me, but for the foreseeable future as the transformation progresses, right? So coming back to how does the transformation progress and why digital trust is needed for such transformations in customers, that's something I want to sort of have a dialogue with you today. Yeah, no, absolutely. But let's, before we get into that, that transition, define for the listener, if you would, you mentioned the trust office. Is that your immediate directs? Is that your entire program? Where does that fit in terms of your responsibility? Is there something, is that you or something larger than you? Is that your entire framework? And why was that name chosen? That's a, that's a unique descriptor that I really like. Can you spend just a moment on that, that sort of branding? Sure. So the trust office is all of my teams and it is, uh, so I lead the trust office for Box. And the way I looked at it is we can, you know, at many times, even with customers or with, um, with the press or analysts or conversations such as peers with you, we talk fragmented across security, compliance, privacy, governance, risk management, and several other pillars. But ultimately, each have a part to play to contribute to trust into the North Star and the North Star being we have a powerful platform, we have a powerful product, we have a powerful offering, whatever that means. And when we see it with a lens of trust, we say protect the brand of box through secure products, secure operations, and continued compliance. So if that, and that's the mission statement of the trust office within box. So when we see it with a lens of trust, 
we have a less fragmented and a more cohesive view of how to engage, where to focus our investments, but also our priorities, and have that conversation around risk. Otherwise, it becomes X, you know, 20 different reports coming to our stakeholders in 20 different angles, and each one of them screaming, I'm the most important, go work on me, right? So that cohesive view comes in when we have this North Star of we're all contributing to trust, be it internal audit, be it third-party vendor assessment, be it privacy by design, be it the architecture and design of our you know, new and upcoming product announcements that we're going to make next week, or it is with customer protection where we look at service abuse and account abuse and we're educating our customers on them getting it right for their use of our platform and product. So all of this is a feather in the hat of trust and how we continue to build upon it. And the bar on trust continues to be raised every single minute, year that I have seen over the past two decades. It is customers want more, partners want more. As providers, we want to do more. So I think the bar, when we talk about brilliant and basics for trust, that bar is only getting higher and higher, which is good because I think it shows that we've been able to meet the brilliant and basics at the current level and we're ready for maturity at the new stage. So yep. trust for me is across all of those pillars. And when you think about digital trust and what that is, is digital trust is underpins every single interaction that happens with a particular entity or platform. And it is innate to that platform, frictionless security, innate to that platform rather than, so built in, not bolted on. And those are the attributes of digital trust. I like that. And I, I, so we are ultimately going to get to kind of a larger format of, of digital trust for digital transformation. But I think that if you remove the trust from that, where you have you know, the digital element, you know, there's a, a digital medium and people are seeking this sort of this transformation or being forced to transform, whether it's via compute or data center shape or needs for security, whatever those are. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something uh, in an earlier conversation that many customers are sort of in the dark and not to infer that they're necessarily ignorant necessarily, but, but what they're in the dark with cloud. What does that mean uh, when you stated that? Can you expand that and compare it to the, the, this notion of trust? Absolutely. And, and sometimes when I say they're in the, in the dark, many are hungry and thirsty for information and education as well. So which is great because that forms the two-way conversation we can have with customers. So when I think about the cloud offerings that we have today, not Box in particular, but SaaS offerings that customers would pivot towards, and they have many motivating factors. Why would they do that? You just mentioned compute, data center, and so on. Customers have also evolved through an era. I could could tell you in the mid-2000s, we had cloud offerings, and there was a very simple statement made by the cloud vendors. They were like, bring your own trust, right? I'm, I'm summarizing and paraphrasing that, but it was BYOT at that time, saying that they were not, they didn't have skin in the game in providing trust in the platform. The customer needed to bring in whatever they needed. And now we're in the era, digital trust, which we're saying is innate to the platform, built in, not bolted on, not twice, thrice removed from the content, which is a prime for businesses today to fuel their transformation, but 
in the nearest proximity to that content, having the richness of telemetry and so on, which we'll get to that. So when customers have traversed that era, many of them are confused, right? Because they've been in the era where they had to bring everything on their own. So they had this illusion of control. And now this illusion of control is somewhat in their perspective taken away because now it's given by the provider. It's innate to the platform. It is supposed to help them transform faster, better, and cheaper, all of that. But they were told a different story not less than a decade ago. So many of them are adjusting to that as well. They're also looking at investments they've put in these areas to what it is now. But more, more importantly, when we say customers are in the dark with the cloud, it is in two areas. One is, do they understand the risks that come with choosing a cloud provider? And no cl cloud provider comes with zero risks. Is that risk within their risk appetite? Do they have a way of performing their due diligence to have transparency on this? So that's one. And within Box, we highly engage with our customers so they get this view. And the second part of this is, do they understand that they are a partner with us? This is a, a two-way handshake and that they have shared responsibilities on config and combination of permutations of policies and all of that to get it right for their users or do they, you know, many customers come say, well, you got to do it all for me and they come in with no skin, skin in the game, then that's not a partnership. So two things are important in today's world for customers. A, understand the risks of operating in this environment. Two, understand this is a partnership and know your part. So partnership in the cloud, I can tell you from my past, you know, there may have been a decision made, and this often happens, where somebody signs up for a cloud service and security gets involved after the fact. So the check's already been mailed and then you're struggling to try to get really equivalence if you're, if you're going to use sort of the, the proper definition to say, look, I don't have basic visibility. I don't have basic logging. I, I don't have a way to do, you know, response and these sorts of things. Are customers, are, are people surprised when you reference this idea of partnership and risk? I mean, are they, if they come back to the table and let's say they have a conversation with you on this, I mean, are they, are they ready for the partnership or are they ready to not have it? In fact, that they've never had to sort of exercise the muscle to, to know uh, how to interact and, and whether that's via a contract or communication through meetings or APIs. I mean, are they ready for that partnership or not? I can tell you that when we have a dialogue this way, customers are highly engaged and they want to know more. Right. So they see because they, as I said, this is not, you know, this is not a George Foreman grill that you set it and forget it. Uh, they are looking on this uh, for the long haul. How does this platform evolve with the ambitious appetite of their own business? What are the priorities in that within their business that is requiring of them to rethink their own trust boundaries? Right. This is the business is pushing their envelope as well on on their thought process. And we come in with this partnership idea and they welcome it, I can't tell you how many customers have been delighted to have this dialogue, have that. And I explain trust and digital trust more in the context of the work we do and the role of CISO that I play. But trust is very simple in my mind. It is doing right by others. And in this case, the others could be customers, could be our partners, 
could be our own self, like our own people, and you know anybody else that we engage in this. And, and doing that right with the level of transparency required. Let's get it right with the level of transparency. That is all trust is. And if we do that with customers, then they see this as more of a long-term partnership. So they are probably a little bit surprised when they hear this, but no more than 16, 17 years ago when I was sitting across a line of business in a major Fortune 100 financial firm and said, gentlemen, how can I help you? And they said, sorry, we're in the wrong meeting. We, he- we came here to meet the security team, mm. right? Because the era there was you get a pat on your back or slap on your wrist, depending on what you wanted to do. You weren't, in- it, it, the enabling conversation wasn't happening. So that was a surprise when that question was asked. And this is now we're saying we're partnering with you know your part you play, know the part you play, know the risks you have in this environment. And the strongest partnerships that we have built within Box are when we are having that dialogue. So in general, kind of outside of Box, give a tip to the listener. If they're in a cloud sort of cloud, cloud contract, let's say, with doesn't matter the, the use case, what's something they should look out? for as a warning sign you know they're for the people that are hungry for an education on this or or maybe they got it wrong the first time again with the lens of risk and and wanting to have a partnership what are the kinds of things if you saw or heard of a behavior of a a different cloud organization you would say whoa uh look generically ciso or cio leader you need to avoid this type of behavior this needs to be redone what is that sort of warning sign if you can share one for us Sure. And I'll probably share it in sort of triplets. I mean, three is a magical number with me. I can remember no more than three things in life at any point of time. I have two dogs, two cats, and two kids. I'm struggling with like six names. <laughs> and I'm saying in, in groups of three because it's, it's sort of never standing still. You, you'll do the first three, then you'll go to the next three and so on. So I think the first three, and you said red flag, so this is more, do we want to have this strategic engagement and so on? The first is, Know your own risk appetite. Many customers, and I'm including myself as a customer, go into conversations without understanding our own risk appetite. So have that internal huddle with ERM, with the Risk and Governance Council, with Chief Risk Officers, or whoever is able to give you a perspective of the risk appetite as discussed and set by the board and so on uh, for the company, for that financial year, whatever it is. So have an understanding of that. So this is, this needs to be done at the strategic level. Then second is understand the risks of operating in the environment that you choose to evaluate right now. Right. And it's important not to say, well, if I don't know the risk, you know, it's like I can have plausible deniability. It's not, it's not that way. It's like go in with open eyes, know your own risk appetite. So, you know, your threshold or your cap and go in with transparency on the risks. And the vendor that you're engaging with should give the level of transparency that you seek. And the third one is, are the use case, do they understand your pain points? Do they understand the use cases? Or are they coming in with product feature capability, checkboxing, you know, we have all of these certifications, we have all of these customers. Is that the first pitch? Instead of discovery, right? Or is discovery, conversations and dialogue that's happening. If so these three are happening, then you move on to the next three and the next three and so on. But I would say that, that if you need a sniff test, these three in, co- in combination, in aggregation, 
is a good sniff test to see as a senior leader if you want to continue the conversation strategically. One question, let's say that uh, there's an, a mover outside of the security department where a cloud contract is about to be signed, but there is a risk appetite that's known and has been calculated and the CISO is bringing this up as an issue. Let's say this is very generic, but let's say there's no federated trust. There's no sort of ability to, there's, there's, there's credential. Yeah. There's credential duplication or something like that, or maybe there's lack of encryption, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's a risk. What is the, 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 does the CISO own that or does somebody else outside the security organization? Because the CISO is going to bring it up to everyone's attention. In most organizations, the CISO brings it up and they have to own it. It's kind of like their own audit finding. Uh, what advice do you have on that? Uh, I see it a lot. So the backdrop of cloud, uh, we identify a, a critical uh, issue that falls outside of acceptable risks that's been agreed upon, not just by security, but it's being thrown back into security's lap. My belief, and this has been from the beginning, so I've never had a battle between who owns it, is depending on where that business case or use case falls, that line of business leader owns it. So in, in this case, if I were bringing, for example, let's say I'm bringing in a threat intelligence feed vendor into our platform, and it could be AI or, or ML or automation, any of those platforms, and if they are coming in with you know, a level of certification we don't have or something like that, then that's the risk I would own because I am the initiator of that business relationship in some way. But if we had another line of business, the line of business could be the IT leader, it could be our product team that wants to use, you know, some sort of development platform, any of that. And there's a risk associated with it. You mentioned some of them, lack of single sign-on encryption and so on. In my mind, it's very clear. Whoever brings in that business relationship owns the risk. They need to know that very clearly. And within Box, we have an ERM framework that helps to have a healthy dialogue and debate on reviewing risk exceptions or risk reviews uh, that need to be held and scoring it and talking about it objectively and saying, and again, coming back to our risk threshold saying, how does, this, how does a residual risk affect our risk posture and is this acceptable? And that's a joint decision across chief legal, legal counsel, CISO, sometimes the CIO, and the line of business leader. So there are four of us involved in it, depending on how much we have to rotate. It could be all four, three out of four, two out of four in some cases. But the process, a strong ERM framework helps to drive that message again and again that the business owns the risk. The business could be IT. The business could be the trust office. Business could be customer support, any of that, but the business owns the risk. Oh, thank you for that. I think that's helpful for people to hear because in many cases, again, it, it sort of calls, it, it falls back onto uh, the CISO or that organization. And then ultimately, if there's still a failure in that space, uh, like an incident or a breach, they're the one that ultimately would have to sort of pay the price on that, which gets into another sort of unfair situation. Talk to me a little bit, if you would, and share with us What's the concept uh, behind zero touch? And as you define that, what is it and, and why should somebody get excited about it? Right. So let me just frame up the concept that this is what, you know, G and I were discussing earlier, zero touch. So just a little bit of framing the context around it. When we think about digital trust, driving digital transformation, 
And we think of a way of scaling on that single pane of glass view on risks. Part of scaling is how can content work for you? Today, we have content with the richness of metadata. A contract knows it's a contract. A claim form knows it's a claim form. A electronic health record knows it's an you know, it's a, it's a health record. So content is very self-aware in today's world and classification, metadata, all of that helps with that awareness for that content. So when it becomes self-aware, the power of transformation comes with how can that content work for you? How can the content fuel the transformation that you seek? Let me take you an example of a, of a famous insurance company that we have as a customer their claims process was built on top of the box platform and their SLA sort of dropped from weeks to hours with that claim process. So you can capture something with a photo, you know, whether it's a vehicle damage, house, whatever it is. And that photo has metadata, the, the request form that goes with it has metadata and it through workflow and automation, it sort of fuels itself until it comes to an automatic resolution. Yes, approved payment to be made denied because of certain instances or it goes in an exception queue, that's when human intervention comes. So the way to scale what we see, what I see from where I sit is that you need to have a North Star of which of your processes are ready for that non-manual touch. And non-manual touch is in three different layers. It could be RPA, repetitive process automation, which is BOC-based and like the lowest rung of the ladder when we think about zero touch. The next level of maturity comes with machine learning. Okay, I learned that this claims process in this scenario was approved. Okay, so I will learn from that to look at a diff- another claims process. Maybe there are some similarities, 80% match, and then learning doesn't go into the approval stage again. So that's ML. And then on top of that becomes augmented intelligence where it is learned, you know, so those are the three levels that we see when we say zero touch. We have customers in all three of these phases. In, in it depends on where they are in their journey of how they want to get zero touch. But zero touch is the way to scale, is the way to retain your talent that is focused on more strategic aspects, not picking things out of a ticket and pushing buttons to just sort of make it flow down the queue in some way. As a carrot uh, for those listening that are interested it's always important to celebrate sort of victories like that. So for the customer, in this case, an insurance company, there was a time savings. Is that what they initially presented in that sort of discovery process to say, it's taking us too much time, that is our pain? Was it inaccuracies? And then whatever that correction is, who typically gets credit for sort of that fix? Is that that the technical team or is it um, sort of air quote the business? I share that just because there's a, a, the ability to tell or retell the story for the listener might be a conversation starter and ultimately lead to something similar someplace else. So talk to me a little bit of, about that if you could. So let me address it from the customer's viewpoint. They came to us with a motivation around better user experience because they had done some voice of customer surveys and so on. And the second is a reduction of errors in the, or inconsistencies um, within their environment because you know that that uh, also affects the ability of insurance providers to go insure themselves right they, you know the, the higher errors you have then you know you got to put away more to cover all of those so so they came in with that top of mind uh, it wasn't dialing on can we automate it can we workflow or automation is the way to go but it was like 
how can we deliver a better user experience in today's world where most of our customer population is millennials, our workforce population is, you know, in the next few years is going to be more than half in millennials and they're coming with a, a different set of experience on their consumer world. And when they come to services or enterprise world, they're seeing a stark difference in that experience. So they came in with that point of view. So, but then to address your third part of the question, uh, Steve, could you repeat that? You had three parts. Yeah, so I, I think the, the thing that I always like sharing, uh, so there's sort of a victory here that you've described, and we believe that there's higher accuracy, and we're sort of eliminating the monotonous, certainly something that was probably time-consuming and maybe monotonous for the employee. And so we, at a high level, have fixed this. Uh, now it's time to celebrate. How is that recognized? Like, what, what tips might you have? Is there a calculation that you perform either manually or did the team perform to say, look, we save a thousand hours a, a month, a day, a year of effort because of this? And, and again, I, I ask this part of the question because I think it's important to tie our work to savings of effort. It's something that we do at Exabeam. Uh, I think it's important in all areas of, of tech, you know, utilize the CPU. So if you have anything to share there, that'd be great. Yeah, so I'll share two points, maybe from the customer point and what we do within, because I have an automation team as well, and how we are looking at the KPIs for that team. So from a customer standpoint, they had a baseline of how it was pre-zero touch and, and post. So, you know, they had the metrics on their SLAs, their customer experience, which is where they came in. We want to change customer experience. We want to reduce errors. They also had a reduction in error rate. So their success, I think the way they would have measured success, and we actually, this is a good thing because we didn't follow through with, hey, how did you, you celebrate that success? But for me and my point, if I were in their position, I would have selected, measured it with how, what percentage of reskill and repurposing of individuals that could have been in that manual process are now diverted or pivoted towards other strategic areas for the business that perhaps didn't have that level of staffing attention and so on. So I think that's the celebration it's about. And then when, when I look at my own team, we calculate minutes saved with the automation. We look at every process, what mature level, maturity level it is, and we keep having candidates that are ready for automation. But for me, it's more so about what, for the level of automation that we did, what did the team that we developed it for, gain from it. And that's going to be, I mean, the celebration first is about people. Hey, we're able to take, I'm just giving an example here because we do automation of our cert. You know, we were able to reduce 45% off, you know, phishing triage that the cert needed to do before. And now that time for them can be spent on more of threat hunting rather than working on these phishing tickets that came, right? And that's more, this is what where retention, talent development, growth, repurposing, reskill all comes in because now they are pivoting towards more proactive rather than reactive. So in my mind, those should be the measures. I'm sure there are others um, that customers as well as uh, service providers measure. But if we don't celebrate the people and their reskilling and repurposing enough, then we're losing sight of what that automation was delivered for. Completely agree. You know, it's one of the things I've got from my prior life. Obviously, I'm here at Exabeam. I've been here for about two years. But in my prior life, you know, building and, and leading teams, you're responsible for, for their output, uh, the quality of their work. 
but you're also responsible for uh, their care and making sure they have a good day at work and making sure that you're making them valuable. And, you know, the repetition of monotonous tasks is not making anyone valuable. So maybe that's a lesson primarily from you, but maybe I'll, I'll reinforce it, that when you automate something or when you're improving a business process, you're taking care of people. As long as uh, you can measure it and then uh, sort of shift those resources into a into a, a higher level or a maybe a, a deeper thinking type position or, or task, so they know when a new project comes down the road that they'll be positively affected by it, not negatively. Agree. So I think that's a that's a, a piece that I think everybody could pause a moment and and consider that when they have a, a project like the one we've described or. You know, we, we deal with it a lot uh, in our world. You know, these, these analysts are overwhelmed and they're, they're doing many manual tasks and, and we want to eliminate that. Something that's near and dear to my heart, it's a more generic question, uh, but it certainly applies to, to all of what we've discussed. What risks in general uh, do security teams face as the business teams and even the security teams themselves uh, shift toward cloud services? What are the risks specifically around breach response and, you know, overlapping an investigative environment into the cloud. Uh, can you spend a couple moments on that and what are the risks and then what's sort of your recommendation? When we think about risks in the cloud environment and if it's a shift from either on-prem to cloud or just expansion further into cloud and you have to think, you know, I also am seeing the pattern where companies have made the leap to First level cloud and first level cloud is a provider that has, um, you know, their own data centers. They have their own private cloud, and you're moving into a provider that has a private cloud. And then, lo and behold, the provider, a few years from then, says, "Hey, I'm going to public cloud for my compute. I'm going to public cloud. I'm lifting and shifting my chassis there. The product, the platform, the services." will be running on that chassis. And for many customers, that's like a double leap for them because they just made the leap, regulatory uh, obligations driven, conservative, traditional approach driven, whatever it may be, into just the first cloud. And now you're creating a level of interaction to a tiered second cloud stack, right? So, if you, so I'm just putting it out there because that's what we're seeing more and more as a trend and the risks or the, the challenges uh, teams are facing when we think about shifting or moving towards cloud services. And the way to think about this and the way I would do it and have conversations with customers is, other than those three pillars that we have, we, we know our own risk appetite. Have, what are the risks in operating the cust- with this uh, vendor? And are we, you know, having the right use cases. Is it, is it organic or is it a force fit for these use cases, right? So once that is done, the next three we look at is the risks that teams face today are A, you mentioned something to the fact that, you know, many of these conversations around trust and security and compliance could be bolted on rather than built in from, you know, from the beginning. The CISO or the risk council or the governance board are brought in towards after, you know, almost contract ready to sign and so on. So the the risk there is becoming obsolete. And teams face that risk if they are not driven to be highly educated with business risks and business acumen. And if, if we speak more of that with our product, 
with our operations, with customer support, with any with with services, any of those teams, we're not going to be the ones you know forgotten at the table or notable absentees at the table as well. So one is business acumen, right? That's the risk or lack thereof going after business, understanding business risk or gaining the business acumen is, a, is an existential risk that security teams face and will continue to face if we don't pivot there. Most CISOs are finding themselves to be more leaning towards the, the business risks and the business side and then leveraging their domain expertise aligned to that, right? So that's what you're seeing as you talk to different CISOs as well. How would a CIO, I mean, just a basic first step for a CISO or director of security, whatever uh, may exist, regular company, uh, maybe not a product company, but just uh, you know, has a, a traditional security team. We keep coming back to understanding business risk and business trends. What's the first step? What if, what if they don't have those relationships today? What's, what's the first piece of advice that you'd give there? What's step one? Where do they start? Understand your lines of business. In many of these, whether you're a financial organization, life sciences, these could be centralized teams, right? So they are servicing more of a, um, you know, many lines of business, perhaps not having that security partnership. So A, I would say, know your lines of business. For, very simple, know how your company makes money, right? Or if you're nonprofit, know how your, your organization provides value. What is its not star, right? And we work with several 8,000 nonprofits within Box. And it's imperative for us, not just as a provider, but as a shared purpose to understand each one of their uh, goals. And it's not there out to, to make money. It's more so, hey, we want to do more with less. How can you help us? Uh, or with what we have. So how can you help us? So it's about you have to know that. And, and if, if the teams don't seek to know, that's, that's what I call the existential threat. But for CISOs and director of security and, and the heads of security working in centralized teams or decentralized teams embedded within the lines of business, you have to first understand how your business operates. Second, know where the pain points are. And the pain points are with your business leaders, whether it is in portals, you know, like wealth management, whether it is in your creation of a new drug like life sciences, which where the, where the leaders there in that organization are within your R&D organization, or whether it is um, retail that is trying to create a new line where your business there is with that creation team, doesn't matter. You have to go seek to build those relationships and sometimes even before, and many times before you need it, because once you just do a tactical engagement, then again, you're that notable absentee, you're the forgotten entity at the table. So seek to build those relationships for, I wouldn't just say heads of security, but across the team, peer-to-peer relationships. Because for every head of product, there is a product engineer that can talk to a security engineer about, hey, how do I do this securely? What's the best practice around it? So there are counterpart relationships uh, across the teams. And the second is, Know if you have to talk risk across your organization, you have to connect it with business risk. Because if you're going with an IT or operational risk, then it doesn't stick. It doesn't stick on the wall. You may, you may sort of fling at it, but it doesn't come back with a reaction. It doesn't come back with the partnership that you need. So you have to connect it with a business risk. So knowing the ERM framework of how those business risks are spoken about is important. Creating your own framework here 
that is, you know, I, I've seen many fancy frameworks, heat maps, Steve, I'm sure you've seen a number of heat maps in your era as well. But um, that all doesn't make any sense or will have no traction if it is not in the business uh, risk language. So you have to seek to do that. And there are, I haven't found in my lifetime in this profession, a business leader, a chief risk officer, a legal counsel, or anybody that I needed to talk to and gain saying, well, I can't share that with you, or I have to kill you to tell you or anything like that. So right there, they're very forthcoming because they believe with that dialogue, they're only going to gain from it. Let's game this a little bit. So I know you're going to do very well here. So I, let's, let's say I'm legal counsel or EVP of sales, and I want you to verbalize, what email would you send me? You don't know me, right? I work, we work in the same company. We work for um, a large pharmaceutical company, both of us, and I'm in sales. And you don't know me and I don't know you, but you're going to send an email or maybe pick up the phone if you so chose to make an introduction. And obviously the goal is all what we talked about today, but tell me what would that, how would that conversation go or read to me what that email says. This is just the introduction. So I want to leave the listener with this. Okay. What would it be? And I'll just tweak a little bit to that question. I wouldn't put this in an email. I put it in a box note <laughs> so I can control who read it, who what, how was it? Because an email can be forwarded and so on. So. Strong plug. Okay. Let's, all right. So the message, tell me the message. So the message, well, it depends if it's transactional, if it's that fire burning and uh, hey, no, no. the first time we're talking, the message is going to be different. But if this is the bridge, it's the relationship building that I'm, uh, that I'm seeking yeah. before the fire happens. There's no fire. Yeah, no fire. You're just, it's, things yeah. are good. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be, first of all, this wouldn't be a written conversation. This, like you said, it'll be pick up the phone, email. I rarely transact via email and, you know, there's, and there's a lot of uh, conversational dialogue that I do. So it'll be a dialogue and it'll go something like this thing. Hey, I, you know, I just joined the company or I have been, or, or maybe I've tenured in this company and I've just been you know, I've assumed this role. Here's what it looks like today. Here are some of my priorities. Tell me about, I don't want to assume anything about your role. Tell me about your role. What are your pain points? What are your, like, first, let's start with priorities and go with pain points. And so it's more, it's going to be a two-way, here's who I am. Here's what I believe I should care for. And that's why I'm engaging with you. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what you believe and care for. And all we're doing here is trying to find out similarities, where we are convergent, where we are divergent. Because where we are divergent, then we know it needs more dialogue and conversation to reach some parallel path, right? So that's going to be one of the first introductory conversations I will have. So when reaching out to make change in an organization and, and getting to know how somebody makes money, how does the company make money, and who are the people, the personalities behind that? How would you reach out in, in whatever, via whatever medium, whether that's an email or a phone call, what exactly would you say? And how would you make it a pointed message, but a very human one? What are the kinds of things you'd include? Right. And this is the building the partnership and mostly in cases when you're not in a fire drill, right? Preferably. Absolutely. So for us, think about go-to-market sales or legal or um, privacy council or um, product, uh, head of product or engineering. So there are a number of customer support, user services. The list goes on and on about minimum, amount, minimum stakeholders that the CISO needs to 
uh, have those bridges built with. So for me, my style is, uh, you know, it's a conversation. It's a dialogue. Um, the first note is not like a written one. Maybe it's more so asking for their time and years working it out. But the conversation is more so, here's who I am. Here's what are some of my beliefs and priorities. And, and, and it's important to assume zero knowledge, right? So don't assume that the person knows about your role or knows about your past or where you're coming from or where you're going towards with this company. So assume zero knowledge. And that goes two ways. Assume zero knowledge for their role as well. As much as the homework and everything you may have done, let's keep it at the back pocket. Let's listen to them as an open mind about who they are and what do they connect priorities, challenges. And the intent of this conversation is the two of us or three, whoever, how many other people in the conversation, we're looking for where we are converging and where we are divergent. And divergent is not necessarily a red flag, but divergent that could lead to inconsistent execution or inconsistent messaging or fragmented messages towards our partners and customers. Those are the ones you want to help to come to converge. Otherwise, you know, it's fine to have, I mean, that's how we have diversity of ideas within a workplace. So I'm not, every divergent item that I identify is not a red flag. I'm just looking at, oh, okay, this could be a problem for us because we're, you know, we're going to have inconsistent messaging with our customers and so on. So that's the first conversation. I always try to look at the human element part of it. I mean, I share, and I think it's important that whoever initiates this, they are coming back to what I said in the beginning you're not afraid to show your vulnerable side, right? So you're discussing maybe family. If you take the cue that they want to go there, you're discussing some hobbies or maybe recently, you know, what you took up in midlife or something. And and you'll find something there that connects with them. And similarly, when they'll be probably trusting and share something about, and you'll find something that connects. And as you said, and I don't know if you said this, or I think you had Colin Anderson in the show before, and he said that, you need to have a narrative. The board won't remember your numbers, but they remember your narrative. It's the same thing, right? Where I truly believe that every human connection that we make, then they perhaps won't you know, remember the details of the conversation, but they will remember the feeling they, they walked away from it. And Absolutely. so always, yeah. have, always have that outcome. How do you want this person to walk away from this dialogue, right? Have that outcome clear in your mind, geared towards that, and see if you achieved it. And if you didn't achieve it, then go back at it again. Yeah. How do you want them to feel when they leave the conversation? And they'll remember a story and they'll remember the feeling that's been proven over and over again. Earlier in our chat, you mentioned right after you talked about trust office, which I still love. I, I love that moniker. Uh, I think that's something that, that more people need to look into and, and maybe borrow or steal. But after that, uh, single pane of glass. You hear that a lot. That gets thrown around. What is your sort of definition and meaning behind that as it relates to all of what you do? What what People need it. What is your definition of it? How is it used? So the single pane of glass, as you said, is used in many aspects. Uh, you know, there's a, it's used in aspects of SIMS saying, oh, this is a single pane of glass and alerts and detection and so on. But the way I see it is not so much tools uh, are capability focused, but more of a mindset, more of a uh, seeking that outcome uh, related. So the single pane of glass view on risks 
across the enterprise. And when we talk to our customers, their single pane of glass view on risks to their content means, do you have a more end-to-end view of whatever risk, if it's content risk, if it's operational risk, if it is vendor risk, whatever the risk you're going after, do you have the information that gives you a more end-to-end view or is it more fragmented, right? So let me take an example here. So, and one with our customers and one with us. So one with our customers is when we think about content for our customers and they say, oh yeah, we'll just get your event stream entire logs and we'll suck it in into our, you know, their single pane of glass, which is totally normal. And we'll look at the alerts and detection, but then are you getting too much of it or too little of it? Because where you're looking at is twice, thrice removed from where the actual richness of telemetry of activity is taking place, right? So that's, that's one view from our customers. But for me, operating as a CISO is, do I have the risk narrative for this exploit or this vulnerability or this finding from an audit or this internal audit or a self-identified audit or a pen test finding? A number of channels in which risks come in within the environment but do we have a process that gets it to a common denomination of what is the impact, what is the risk narrative, what is the consequence of inaction? Right? The consequence of inaction is very powerful because it talks to, this is a risk now, in three months and six months this is how the risk amplifies, or maybe there's another trigger for risk amplification and so on. Or maybe there's a trigger for this risk going away. You know, we'll have like, I don't know, 100 servers with this risk, in two months, they're being decommissioned because we're moving data centers, right? So that's a de-amplification in some way. So the consequence of inaction is an important narrative when we think about the single pane of glass view on risk. And we have all three, the impact, the risk narrative, and the consequence of inaction. That is the single pane that CISO should strive to see their operating environment and the narrative that they provide to their senior leadership. I love the... Uh... The phrase consequence of inaction, it sounds like a title for a keynote. (laughs) One more question for you. As we know, this is the new CISO uh, podcast. What does being a new CISO mean to you? A new CISO for me is um, a way to understand the current environment, the current business, uh, the current talent, the current people what motivates them, what inspires them, and to build operational excellence, which time and time in my role I have, but to build it, perhaps the target is the same, but the journey is different. And that's very exciting for me because along in this journey, as you said, there are partners you need to bring along, some more eagerly than others. Uh, There's a team that needs to have the shared vision with you. And then there's talent that you need to go seek uh, to build, to complement you know, existing skill sets and so on. So I'm in it for the journey. Many of the target states, you know, I could say have been there, done that. But the journey is the one that inspires me to continue to seek to do better, seek to lean in, seek for that empathy and um, seek for, a, you know, new CISO means a new way to secure. Thank so much for your time today and sharing all you know. You've been a fantastic guest. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate the opportunity. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. 
If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic, or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast. 